We are finishing up our study in Daniel tonight. We're in Daniel 6. And you say, wait a minute, there's 12 chapters in Daniel. And that's true. I've mentioned this before. The book of Daniel breaks up into two halves. And chapters 1 through 6 really cover Daniel's life uh, as a teenager, along with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the nation of Judah was handed over by the Lord to King Nebuchadnezzar for judgment. They had refused to follow um, the one true God. They had refused to listen to the prophets. They continued to get into idolatry and all kinds of horrific things, child sacrifice, all kinds of things. And God was long-suffering, but there was a day when Daniel was in his teenage years and they were handed over to Nebuchadnezzar, and they were taken off into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Now, he went through a lot of chapters of his life, um, and those chapters are pretty much the, the autobiographical or the biographical stuff of Daniel. You could call it either way. Go through chapter 6. But then the second half of the book goes into the end times. It goes into what God is going to deal with in the future. And Daniel would get this revelation from the angel that God sent, and it was so overwhelming to him that, and we looked at this last week, that as you go through 7 to 12, at times he gets physically ill, he gets sick. He has to be ministered to, the weight of it the stress of it. And he is told, this is not for your time, this is for a future time. So, that ties in with the book of Revelation, that ties in with, um, I was talking to someone this week, and we've been friends for a long time, and hey, can I ask you a question about Revelation? Sure. Um, in Revelation 6, and I'm thinking, what's in Revelation 6? It's been a while since I really dug into Revelation, uh, the, the, the book. And uh, they're trying to figure out certain things, and yeah. And these, and these uh, visions and these beasts, and how does this all tie together? Well, you've got that, not only in Revelation, you've got it in the second half of Daniel. So are we going to cover that? No. <laughs> not right now. We might come back to it at some point. But I'm going to start a study next week. I'm going to kind of switch gears. I'm going to start a, a new series called God-Fearing Men. God-Fearing Men. Because, that, now that's a phrase you don't hear too often anymore. He's a God-fearing man. When I was a kid, you used to hear that phrase often. He's a God-fearing man. But we don't use it much anymore. It's a great term. It's a great phrase. It's very descriptive. Uh, we want to be God-fearing men. And throughout the Bible, you have men, some who are very well-known, others who are more obscure, but they were God-fearing men. What's interesting is these different men that we will look at, they, uh, none of them lived in a democratic republic like we have lived in. None of them had a constitution with um, a Bill of Rights. None of them were promised um, religious liberty. 
None of them were promised free speech. In other words, the things that we have had as Americans, none of these guys in the Bible, none of them had that. Now, what we're watching is we're watching those things that we have always had and appreciated. And this is why people have come from all over the world to be a part of this nation. It was unique. It was a city on a hill. Not everyone was a Christian. We all know that. But historically, it wasn't built on the Koran. It was built on the Bible. You go to D.C., you see Scripture everywhere. It's easy to pull down a statue. It's hard to get rid of Scripture chiseled in stone. There's still a lot of Scripture in D.C., but you see, that was the, 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 some of the foundational documents came from scriptures. There's no doubt about it. What's happened is those liberties are, and we, we're, we're watching it before our eyes. Um, they're just going by the wayside. They're just being utterly ignored. They are being uh, rewritten. They're being reinterpreted. In fact, um, here's a phrase for you. Uh, you have no standing. I've never heard that. That's a new one on me. You have no standing, which seems to me to be a convenient way of saying, uh, yeah, I don't want to deal with this as a judge. I don't want to take this on because I don't want the pushback. I don't want the um, difficulty that comes with that. I, I, uh, yeah, you have no standing. So these are the times in which we're living. But what we need to be in these times is strong and courageous. We need to be God-fearing men. Daniel 6 is a great transition from the end of this current study to the transition to the new study. Because if anyone was a God-fearing man, it was Daniel. And we'll be in Daniel 6 tonight. It's a very well-known story. It's Daniel in the lion's den. We'll, uh, we'll hit it uh, with a three-point outline, and I'll go ahead and give it to you. In Daniel 6, 1 through 9, here's the first point. We'll see Daniel and the deep state. And if you think I'm kidding, wait till we read it. There was a deep state, and uh, they came after him. Daniel in the deep state. Secondly, we will look at Daniel's deep stability, his deep stability in these turbulent, upsetting times where um, he was under attack. They were trying to get rid of him. They were trying to silence his voice. Have you noticed that seems to be happening right now with uh, great enthusiasm, silencing the voice of Christians? Silencing, uh, we don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear it. If, uh, if your message is not what they want to hear, they'll not just uh, attack you. They're going to they're, they're destroy you. That's what they're going to do. So, and this, is, this has been around a little bit, but we've been tsunamied here. Do you, do you remember, how many years ago was that tsunami that hit parts of Indonesia and 
hit Japan, hit a lot of places. I, I remember the footage. We've seen it over and over again. Do you remember the, the footage of there was a resort town right on the beach, and someone is shooting this from a cliff up above, and there is this long, beautiful, pristine beach, and there's one man walking early in the morning, and he's just walking in, you know, the water that's coming up, the tide, and then going out, and he's got his head down, and he's deep in thought. There is no one else on this beautiful beach. And as he's walking and thinking, and what is he thinking about? What he's going to face when he gets home, what, um, what's going on with this company? Uh, did he just sell a company? Uh, does he have the possibilities of selling? Is he going to expand it? Is he, you know, what's in his mind? He's just thinking about, he's away from where he normally is, and he's just quiet, and he's thinking about his life, and out of nowhere, and he utterly disappears. That's what's happened in this nation. Just in recent weeks, when you're living in a situation where there is great instability, in order to survive, in order to, um, in, in order to live out your faith, in order to have an influence, in order to have an impact, in order to provide a sense of calm for those under your care. And you have people under your care that you love and you protect that uh, look to you. When everyone else is panicking, when everyone else is uh, running around, everyone else is just frantic. Isaiah 26, 3, thou will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on thee. Thou will keep in perfect peace he whose mind is stayed on thee. Stayed, stayed. It's kind of a football term. If, uh, I, I remember in high school, I played some defensive end. And we were playing this team coming up this next week and they love to run this reverse play. And what they would do, and I remember the coaches drilling this into me, they would run this sweep. So I'm over on this side. You know, everybody, I'm, I'm the guy on this side. Everyone else is over here. So they're going to run that sweep. They kept running a sweep this way. And, and when you're a young high school guy, what you want to do is you want to pursue but if you're playing end on that side on defense, don't pursue. Stay. In fact, he said, stay at home. Just stay at home. Yeah, but when that guy, see, I know, I see that reverse, and I, hey, listen, and that guy's trying to get through the traffic, I can catch that sucker from behind. He goes, yeah, 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 yeah. Stay at home. Don't do it. Don't go after him. Because they'll run that play three, four, five times. And then the sixth time, They'll run that sweep, and that flanker will come, and he'll hand it off to him. And if you're going after that guy, that flanker's going right by you. And he's got a clear sail all the way to the end zone. So you need to stay at home. 
He whose mind is stayed. See, that's, you stay at home. In the midst of all this turmoil, in the midst of all this anxiety, in the midst of all this change, what do you do? There's a hymn that says, stayed upon Jehovah. Hearts are fully blessed, finding as he promised perfect peace and rest. You're stayed, stayed. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, Ephesians 6, 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's that's an interesting passage, that Ephesians 6 passage, and I'll tell you why, because it talks about staying, only it doesn't say to stay, it uses a different term. It says, stand firm. 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. Three times, stand firm. Um, When you're standing firm, you're stayed. Stayed upon Jehovah. He whose mind whose mind is stayed on thee, thou will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in thee. So we'll look at Daniel in a deep state. Secondly, Daniel's deep stability in the tsunami. Verses 10 through 15, chapter 6. And then thirdly, we'll look at, uh, and we all know the end of the story. Thirdly, we'll look at Daniel's din D-E-N of deliverance, verse 16 down to the end. Let's jump in. So Daniel in the deep state. Really? Yeah, really. Let's go back to Daniel and see what, uh, what's going on in his life at this particular point. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. Now... Let's just stop right there and get some context. So in, we're in Daniel 6. In Daniel 5, you had a completely different empire, the Babylonian Empire. But because of an event that happened in Daniel 5 where they took the goblets, this is um, Belshazzar, the, the young king, whose grandfather was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah took all the stuff out of the temple, including the goblets. So this young Belshazzar is having a banquet, having a fundraiser, undoubtedly. And he says, go get the goblets that were, was taken from the temple in Jerusalem. They take them, they drink the goblet the, out of the goblets, and they give glory to idols, to gods of gold and silver and wood and stone. And immediately when they did that, there's a hand that goes on the wall and begins to write on the wall. And then that's when the thousand people, along with the young king, begin to have physical discomfort because it's the hand of God. They call Daniel, he interprets it, and basically says, you've been 
you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Your kingdom is ending tonight. And if you look at verse 30 of Daniel 5, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean, which means Babylonian king, was slain. He was killed that very night, this young king who thought he'd be in power for a long, long time. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Darius the Mede is a title. It's given to different kings at different time. This king, this title, this Darius the Mede is Cyrus, who was the guy that God, this king, who had a different empire, the empire of the Medes and Persians. So you had the Babylonians. Now here come, so the Babylonian empire is over. Now here comes Cyrus. The people of God have been in captivity for 70 years, and God is going to use Cyrus to take God's people back to Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild it, and this pagan king who doesn't know God, it's said twice in Isaiah 44 and 45 that you don't know me, but you're my anointed. He's going to finance the whole thing, and that's what he did. So watch the deep state. There's always a deep state. It seemed good to Darius, Cyrus, the new king, to appoint 120 satraps, protectors, providers, over the kingdom, that they wouldn't be in charge of the whole kingdom, sort of like Congress, House of Representatives, something like that. And over them, three commissioners, <clears throat> of whom Daniel was one. So Daniel is one of the top three guys. And these satraps might be accountable to them, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. Daniel's in his late 80s, maybe 90. He's had this since he was a boy, all the way through this book. He possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king, watch this, here you go, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Ah, now you got jealousy. Now you got people positioning for power. Now you've got people who resent it. And now you've got people that are doing everything they can do to keep their power and to keep their position. And the last thing they wanted was this Daniel to be pointed over the whole thing. Then the commissioners and the satraps begin trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption. That's quite a statement. The guy's clean. If you're clean, you're clean. Inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men, then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. And they were right. So what they did was, they're going to, um, they're going to do a little uh, change the law. Verse 6, then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king, spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction as anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. In other words, king, you're going to be god for 30 days. There used to be a show in the 50 called Queen for a Day. This is king for 30 days. This is God for 30 days. So we're going to make a law, king, and you're going, to be, you're going to be God for 30 days. Now, O king, eight, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it may, be, may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians and may not be uh, revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. So 
I'm sure they gave him a stack of bills. He's signing them. And, you know, just paperwork, paper, paper, paper. But, you know, you, you, you can't read the bill until you sign the bill, and he did it. So he puts this law in place. Now, let's go back and talk about this a little bit. This is Daniel in the deep state. Uh, Stephen Nichols is a professor of church history. He's written an excellent article called We Can Have Confidence. And he's going to talk about He's going to talk about Nebuchadnezzar, and he's going to talk about Cyrus. He's also going to mention the king who came before Nebuchadnezzar and had the great empire before Babylon, Sennacherib. So this first paragraph is going to talk about three empires, three kings that are all in the Bible. Sennacherib ruled Assyria from the capital city of Nineveh, which was the largest city in the world at that time. He was formidable, ruthless, a military ruler bent on collecting nations. Nebuchadnezzar, a ruler of the Babylonian Empire, surpassed him because nations rise and fall, empires rise and fall. Nebuchadnezzar made Babylon even larger and greater than Nineveh. Nothing like it had ever been seen. Cyrus, Darius the Mede here, surpassed them both, creating the world's largest empire through merciless force. When Cyrus's vast army marched, the ground shook for miles. Isaiah 40, 15 says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Talking about the greatness of God, uh, in, in Isaiah 40, God says that the great nations of the world are meaningless and void. Meaningless. Is that how you view uh, communist China? Is that how you view Iran? Is that how you view deep state? Is that how you, uh, we tend not to. We tend to put them up pretty high. God says they're nothing. He goes on, as the city of Rome had fallen, now he's jumping ahead to the Roman Empire. But we had the rise and fall of the Roman Empire in history. That was later. And the Vandals, the Huns, the Goths, and the Visigoths were dismantling the Roman Empire. When that happened, Augustine, or Augustine, however you prefer, began his great work called the City of God. He had been a pagan, a derelict, uh, just living for himself, and uh, he came to Christ. He was uh, born in 354 A.D., 300 years after Christ, lived till 430 A.D. The City of God was a... Uh, it's, it's a significant book for all of history. Significant book now. You want to understand what's going on right now? The city of God's your book. On the opening pages, he declares how great the city of God is, how great the city's founder and king is. He extols this glorious and eternal city, noting that it towers above all earthly dignities that totter on this shifting scene. Yes, even Rome tottered. Isaiah, he's jumping to Isaiah now, back to the, the verse. Isaiah and Augustine have much in common. Both faced seismic political change and social upheaval. Sound familiar? Doomsday predictions swirled around them both. People were pick, packing their bags and lacing up their running shoes. Some were hiding in caves. Nevertheless, both Isaiah and Augustine favored 
face these cataclysmic changes with confidence and courage because they had their eyes fixed upon God. May we say this, they were stayed upon Jehovah. They were stayed. They were standing firm. Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, and Cyrus had all been great. Rome and her emperors had been great. The barbarian armies were a great threat. All, however, were a drop in the bucket. Not one of these great rulers and not one of these empires could compare to God and his kingdom. Only ruins remain where these nations once stood. Last paragraph that applies to us. Throughout biblical history and throughout church history, God's people have faced difficult circumstances. Giants of enemies. Some have faced literal armies. Today we get discouraged by all that we see around us. It's easy to despair as evil seems to prosper. It's easy to become absolutely overwhelmed. But as we can learn from those who have gone before us, we can learn to have a proper perspective. We must look beyond the temporal and the finite and look to our eternal God, to his eternal word, toward his eternal kingdom. Isaiah, Augustine, and many others teach us not to cower in the face of our circumstances, but to stand tall, stand tall in confidence in God. That's a timely word. So, they hated Daniel. It was a power play. There was a bureaucracy. They had power. They wanted power. And they were going to do anything they could do to get rid of Daniel. Uh, the word today is uh, cancel. What Daniel 6 is all about is uh, the cancel culture. We, we think this is a new development. It's not new. It's been around forever because sin has been around forever. It's, uh, the cancel culture doesn't want just to criticize. It doesn't want to critique. It wants to destroy. It wants to make sure you never have a job again. It wants to make sure you never have a day's peace or a good night's sleep again. That's what Daniel was up against. That's what we're up against in this day and age. They couldn't get him on anything because of his character. For, um, for close to... Uh, yeah, 70 years, they kept trying to get dirt on Billy Graham. But they couldn't do it. One of the reasons for that, when, when Graham was a young evangelist, he had a team, Cliff Barrows, George Beverly Shea, um, some other men that are escaping my brain at this moment, but uh, a, a core group of guys, and they stayed together for 50, 60 years. They, um, they were starting to have success. They were starting to draw big crowds. And they knew that so many evangelists had horrible reputations. There was a book written called Elmer Gantry. There was a movie made about it. Just the classic example of a guy who's out preaching the gospel and he's running a scam and he's got women on the side. And Sound familiar? It's always been that way. But they wanted to make sure that they stood above that. 
And so they met in Modesto, California, a little town in the Central Valley of California. And they prayed and they asked the Lord to help them put in place some rules that they would honor and look out for one another and hold one another accountable so that they were above reproach. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, it talks about those who lead the church, those who are spiritual overseers, those who are elders. They are to be above reproach. Speaking of their character, we all have things in our past we're ashamed of that we've done, we're all sinners. But those who are lead the church, they're not to be young, they're not to be novices, they are not to be men who are new to the faith, they're to be men who are um, mature in the faith. And they have uh, let him who steals, steal no longer. They used to be shoplifters, they're not shoplifters anymore because of the work Christ has done in their life. They used to be adulterers, they're not anymore. You get it. Because they're growing in grace. They're God-fearing men. Those are the men you put in leadership. They're above reproach. Uh, the, the qualifications, you look for men that have all these character qualifications in their life. They're present tense. If you turn to 1 Timothy 3, we'll just see there's another list in Titus 1. But as Paul was establishing churches and then he'd leave and Timothy or others would come in. He gave them a list of character qualifications, and you look for these kind of men. First Timothy 3, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer or elder or pastor, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. What that means is, right now in your life, there's nothing you haven't taken care of before the Lord. You don't have any loose ends. You don't have anything hidden. You don't have anything you're covering that you don't know. You don't want any, You don't have any secret sin. You used to. You don't anymore. You see, that's a mature man. That's a God-fearing man. That's who you want in leadership. You've taken it to the cross. You've taken it to the Lord. And when you sin, and we all sin, you confess it. You deal with it. Swiftly, quickly. You don't harbor sin. You don't put up with sin. You don't rationalize sin. You don't defend sin. You kill sin. John Owen said either we will be killing sin or sin will be killing us. You, you, you're not laissez-faire. You're not, no big deal. It's huge. So you watch over your heart, Proverbs 4, for from, from it flows the wellsprings of life. You're serious about your walk with Christ. Now you don't get to this you don't get to maturity overnight. There's no Christian giant microwave where you jump in and hit three and a half minutes spiritual maturity. Hey, praise God. And you suddenly have a thousand verses memorized in your head that you are actually applying to your life. No, that's, that's a long journey. That's a long journey, you see. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, a one woman kind of man. These are present tense. A one woman kind of man, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money, must manage his own household well, keeping his children in control with all dignity, 
the man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a new convert. Um, there's a level of maturity. We all have stuff in here that's been in our lives. And it, it doesn't mean there, there aren't, perhaps there's residue from past stuff or things, but you're dealing with it. And you're clean. You get it. Daniel was clean. They couldn't find a thing on this guy. There's a gentleman named Dave Kraft. He's been a pastor for a long time. He has a ministry to pastors. He has a, a blog to pastors. And uh, so I'm on a, I get his emails a couple times a week, and he recently sent one out. And on the front of it, on that blog, was uh, the cover of a book by David McCullough. It was a biography of uh, Harry Truman. And I have that book in my library. It's about 1,000 pages. I remember when I bought it, I read a couple reviews on it. I thought, I'm going to read that. I haven't read it. I read sections, but I, it just wasn't a time for me to read a 1,000-page biography. I had other stuff going on. But he read it. He said, I normally don't read 1,000-page biographies, but I read this one. And he loved it. Harry Truman is not a president who you think of in the higher echelon. Uh, apparently, the facts bear out he was in the upper echelon of presidents because of his character. Uh, so Truman was just a, I mean, he ran a men's clothing store in Kansas City. And then he got involved in local politics. He was a Democrat. Democrats back then were different than what you got now. I mean, he wouldn't last in that party five seconds, nor would he put up with it for five seconds. Because he was a man, he was a God-fearing man. So here are some snippets from uh, McCullough's blog post. Here's a prayer that Harry Truman often prayed for many years. O Almighty and everlasting God, creator of heaven, earth, and the universe, help me to be, to think, to act what is right, because it is right. Make me truthful, honest, and honorable in all things. Make me intellectually honest for the sake of right and honor and without thought of reward to me. Give me the ability to be charitable, forgiving, and patient with my fellow men. Help me to understand their motives and their shortcomings, even as you understand mine. Truman said this, three things ruin a man. He, he would tell reporters long after he was out of office, as they would come and visit him in Kansas City, three things ruin a man, power, money, and women. Truman said, I never wanted power. I never had any money. The only woman in my life is up at the house right now. Uh, he wasn't looking to be president. You know how things shake out. He was a county judge. Then he suddenly he's a senator. And then FDR picks him as a vice president. And then FBR dies. Well, there's Truman. And they're thinking, oh, he's a lame duck. And at the convention, we'll get somebody else. Eleanor Roosevelt didn't want him. Her two sons didn't want him. A lot of people didn't want him. And he got it, and he won. And he was president until Eisenhower took over. He grew up in a Christian home, went to a little country church that taught the Bible, 
By the time he was 12, he had read through the Bible cover to cover twice. One time before he was president, he was traveling. He got with, with, at his aid. They went to the front desk, got the keys to their room. As he was opening the door, a woman opened up the door from inside, a blonde, beautiful, stunning blonde in a negligee. The aide recounted the situation. He said Truman spun on his heels and ran down the hall, disappearing around the corner. Why? He was a one-woman kind of man. A couple other comments. Truman was inclined to see things in far simpler terms as right or wrong, wise or foolish. He dealt little in abstractions. His answers to questions, even complicated questions, were nearly always direct and assured, plainly said, and followed off also often by a conclusive, and that's all there is to it. That's how he would explain, he would ask a question, that's all there is to it. He would just give the facts. Uh, John Nance Garner wrote to Sam Rayburn about Truman, said he is honest and patriotic. He has a head full of good horse sense. And besides that, he's got guts. Truman said uh, he warned about Potomac fever when he got in D.C. Uh, he didn't like to fire people. For all, his, all of his reluctance ever to fire anyone, he could not tolerate what he called Potomac fever, which he described as a prevalent, ludicrous Washington disease characterized by a swelling of the head to abnormal proportions. He was direct, unpretentious, clear-thinking, and forceful. He was out of bed and dressed by 5.30 or 6, regular every morning, needed no alarm clock or anyone to wake him. The difference between Truman and Roosevelt was that Truman paid much less attention to what his actions were doing towards his chances for re-election. He didn't care. He was going to do what's right. He would be guided by a simple idea to do in all cases without regard to political considerations what seems to me to be for the true welfare of all of our people. There's more. I'll just give you one other thing. While he was president, you know, he's transitioning into World War II. Six million Jews had been slaughtered. And um, there was this movement for the Jews to have their own nation to have their own homeland. And it was very politically unpopular. And he had two advisors, Clark Clifford and General George Marshall, the Marshall Plan. They were on both sides. Clifford was for approving a nation state for Israel. Marshall wasn't. And the book goes into quite a lot of detail. David Ben-Gurion announced the existence of the nation of Israel, and 11 minutes later, Harry Truman endorsed it. Why did he do that? He'd read through the Bible twice before he was 12. And in his church, he was taught, and he read in the Word of God that one day God would return his people to their homeland. And he wept that God gave him the opportunity to validate that from the United States of America. Interesting man. Um, 
Let's go to the second point. Daniel's deep stability. If, if you go back over the first six chapters, Daniel had all kinds of... Let's put it this way. He had a lot of challenges in his life. His nation was sent in exile when he was a kid. He had to handle a godless education, a reindoctrination, new God, new language, new diet, the whole thing. Uh, he and his friends, they stood true to the one true God of Israel. And in the midst of all of this turmoil and threat upon them and deep state, let's get rid of this guy. Uh, he, he can't have power over everything. Uh, there was deep stability in his life. Notice, if you would, back in Daniel 6. Notice verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, that it's against the law to pray to anybody except Cyrus, Darius, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. There was a change in administration, but there was not a change in his heart. He wasn't changing. His allegiance to God was there. Now, that's how we live in these days. There's a model of being a God-fearing man. What you've done, you just keep doing. As much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. But when the government, we're to submit to the government, we're to submit to the authorities, God puts them in place. But when the government tells us to disobey the clear teaching of the Word of God, we've got to say no, and then we take the consequences. That hasn't been an issue for us. It's an issue now. There's a deep state... But in the midst of this threat, and he's an older man, there's deep stability. Why? Isaiah 33, 6 says this. He will be the stability of your times. What a verse. He, God Almighty, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He, the Trinity, will be the stability of your times. It's all changing, laws are being ignored, changed, all this stuff, bureaucracy, all the stuff, all the graft, all the greed, all the corruption, we know about it. He will be the stability of your times. There you go. So how do I get the stability from him? I'm in his word. I meditate on it, I put it in my mind, I chew on it during the day. I've got core verses that are in my life that when I, uh, Psalm 142, 3, when my spirit was overwhelmed, your consolations delight my soul. When I'm overwhelmed, your truth consoles me. It helps me, stabilizes me, keeps me together. I don't have to panic. I don't have to fear. Do not fear. I'm with you, Isaiah 41. Do not anxiously look about you. I'm your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my mighty right hand. I'm walking in this meeting. I don't know if they're going to fire me. I don't know what they're going to do. Fine. I don't even know what I should say. It shall be given to you in that hour what you should say. You don't need to know. You just walk in there, show up, and see what God wants to do. 
Don't stress out trying to figure out when we can say this. Just show up. Be clean. Be honest. Tell the truth. He's got you. You're not walking in there by yourself. These are the facts. These are the facts. This is how you live the Christian life. This is... um, When persecution comes, a lot of people are going to bail. You know why? Because they're frauds. Because they're mouth Christians. It's all mouth. It's all mouth. It's no heart. Jesus said it in Matthew 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them shall be like a man who built his house on the rock and the storms came and the winds blew and he was secure. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, even though you've been a member of this church for 40 years, even though your grandpa was a preacher and his grandpa was a preacher and you always have fried chicken for dinner on Sunday after church and you know all hymns to just as, you know all the verses to just as I am. You got the pedigree, you got the credentials, you got the whole stuff, but it's all mouth. There's no heart, there's no gut. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them shall be like a man who built his house on the sand. And when the storms came and the winds blew, great was his fall. You know the end of the story. Um, he's put into the lion's den, beginning with verse 16. Um, they seal him in. An angel of the Lord is there, shuts the mouths of the lion. That's the third point. Daniel's den of deliverance begins in 616. Um, amazing story. Sort of like uh, with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They throw him in the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, didn't we throw three men in there? I say four. Well, in Daniel, in the lion's den, they put one man in there, but there were two. It was the angel of the Lord. it's, um, It's a great story. We know about it. We tell our children this story. Daniel was delivered by the angel who shut the mouths of the lion. Does God always deliver us? No. Um, Nero took the Christians, he would take families, Christian families, throw them out on the floor of the Colosseum, there'd be a bunch of them, and then they'd loose the lions who hadn't been fed in a week. And they died. Daniel was delivered in this situation. Until, Hebrew says it is appointed for a man once to die and then comes judgment. Up until that point, God will deliver you from death. But when your appointed time comes, you won't be delivered from death. You're going to die. 
Paul said in, in Philippians 1, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So in this situation, Daniel was um, delivered. He was delivered. It was miraculous. God got the glory. But what about those Christians in Rome, and they were killed by the animals, by the lions? Uh, well, they too were delivered, you see. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I, uh, I, 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 I want to uh, address this final point, then I want to go back to something we discussed earlier, because it has great ramifications for us today. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great uh, expository preacher at Westminster Chapel in London, died in 1981. He'd been a medical doctor before he was called into ministry. But when he got into his, um, and he was such an interesting man, he, he was, he called preaching, here's his definition of preaching, it's logic on fire. I love that. It's logic on fire. J.I. Packer was 19 or 20, and he was, uh, he'd become a Christian, but he did not understand the entire gospel. He thought he, he saw the sin in his life, and he was so aware of his sin that he knew God couldn't forgive him, and every day he's asking God to forgive him, and he was just struggling with sin in his life, and he didn't understand the goodness of God. He didn't understand Romans 8, that there is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, he's in college. It's either Oxford or Cambridge. I can't remember which. Lloyd-Jones' daughter is there. He meets her at a Christian fellowship. She invites him, come down to London, hear my father. And uh, he did. And he said, Martin Lloyd-Jones' exposition of the Scripture put my Christian life together. He relieved me of anxiety and depression because he exposited the Scripture. And he said, hearing him speak, it was like watching a big jet aircraft take off. Starts real slow, real slow, real slow. And then it starts picking up speed, and then all of a sudden it's liftoff into the clouds. That's how he preached. Logic on fire. Lloyd-Jones would preach at Westminster Chapel, and then he would have meetings set up across England, and he would go over to Euston Station and get on a train, and he'd go speak somewhere in some little church up there, up here, up in Scotland. He'd come back by Friday. He's on the train. He's working on his sermons. Quite a guy. That's how he lived his life until just a year before he died, and he got cancer. And... Uh, and he was a doctor. He knew it was terminal. And it got to the point where it was really, really bad. He couldn't speak. They called the family together. He was right at the end. And they were going to pray for him. And he indicated he wanted, he wanted a pencil and paper. And they were going to pray. And he, So they handed him a pencil and paper, and he scratched out a note. And they read it. And here's what he said to his family. Do not pray for my healing. Do not hold me back from the glory. 
I don't want 10 more years here. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's the real deal. That's the real deal. He actually believed that to die is gain. He's 81, he's 82. Why do I need to hang around another 15 years? I mean, my time's up. Fine, let's go. Let's get with it. Is that your hope? I want to go back to something. And I'll finish with this. But in Daniel 6, verse 4, it says they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful. And no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. This is character. This is integrity. If you're familiar with the ministry of Ravi Zacharias, you've been in a state of shock, you've been stunned, you, you just can't believe what you're hearing. This man, probably the greatest apologist in our generation of Christianity, it's been documented, has a long history of sexual immorality. And if you don't know that, I'm sorry to break the news to you, but it has shaken a lot of people to the core. I, uh, I, I've been watching gifted men uh, that I admired and appreciated their ministry that had touched my life. I've been watching for 50 years gifted men, powerful in the scriptures. And tragically, it came out that they were living double lives and secret lives. Now, it doesn't mean they're not teaching the gospel. Paul says in Philippians that he's in prison and his circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Others are preaching. And he says some even preach out of selfish ambition. Some, their motive, for, they preach the gospel, but it's out of selfish ambition. It's about them. They want to be known. They want to be elevated. They want to be appreciated. They want the applause of men. They want the limelight. And Paul said, that's okay because they're preaching the gospel. God will handle that. Others preach the gospel. So there are some who preach the gospel, and they're saved, but they're full of selfish ambition. There are others who preach the gospel, and they have great ministries, and they're not saved. In Matthew 7, Jesus talked about the fact that many will say to me on that day, Lord, we did miracles in your name. We did works of power in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And Jesus said, depart from me. He said, I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. And he doesn't say a few will say to me. He says many. And as the years have gone by, and I, I want to say this. I don't know the heart of Robbie Zacharias. I wouldn't pretend to say what is can. I, I don't know, so I will not say. That's beyond my scope. All I know is this. We don't elevate men. We elevate Christ. Christ is our Lord. Christ is our Savior. We appreciate those with particular gifts. 
but they are men and they are flawed and they are sinners and they are weak as we all are. I will say this. As things come out, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but I have tracked this with so many different men. I've been involved with men, with well-known ministries that were living double lives. There are some characteristics in their lives. And I, I'm saying this as a warning to us. I'm saying it as a warning to me. I, I wrote a book in 1995 uh, I wrote it for me. It was called Finishing Strong. I, I wrote it because I had been so shaken as a young man by seeing men who were so powerful in the scriptures that impacted me come out that they were serial adulterers. And let me tell you something. If a guy's in sexual sin, let me tell you what else he is. He's also a liar. Because in order to cover sexual sin, you've got to lie every time you turn around. And before you know it, you're lying and you, even, you don't even have to know. You don't even have to lie. Mark Twain said, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. You just tell the truth. But when you're in a life, a double life, you're always fabricating stories. And you can become a pathological liar. What, what, there are certain things that run through these these tragic stories of someone who's been powerful in the scriptures, yet they're leading a double life. One thing that runs through, and you'll always see, is that if you get up close, you'll find that they are isolated from anyone who can ask them straight and difficult questions. In other words, they have no accountability in their life. On purpose, they put people around them who are intimidated by them. They hire yes people. They tend to marry wives who are enablers. They, um, they spend their lives putting a wall around that no one can break through. In other words, there's no accountability. You know, one of the things that stands out to me about Daniel is that he had three friends. And these guys went through the fire, literally, together. They went through the storms, the upheavals. They went through it together. Is there anyone in your life who can talk straight to you? I need, I'll tell you what I need. I need people in my life who love me enough to tell me the truth. I don't need, and I don't need 5,000 of them. I just need a handful, and I've got them. I got a, I've got a wife who loves me to the point of irritation <laughs> of letting me know because she loves me, and she does it very sweetly. But if I am out of line at, a, at the appropriate moment, she's going to let me know. I need that. And I need to be man enough to listen. And then as my kids got older, they began to practice that. First Timothy 
1 talks about fighting the good fight. Verse 18. We're in a war, we're in a battle. How do you fight the good fight? Paul told Timothy, you fight the good fight by keeping faith and a good conscience. I'll wrap this up. How do these men who are so strong in the scriptures, how do they live, how do they live these double lives? They're so strong in the scriptures. Well, you fight the good fight by keeping faith. Keeping faith is a reference to the word of God. Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? The word of God. So they're strong in the scriptures, okay? And we benefited from their teaching, okay? Thank God for it. But then why do they go down? Because to fight the good fight, you gotta do two things. You don't just keep faith, you keep a good conscience. And when someone starts getting into sexual sin, and they lie about it, and they cover it up, and the Spirit of God convicts them, and they ignore the Spirit of God, something happens to your conscience. And what happens to your conscience, Paul deals with in 1 Timothy 4, and what happens is that your conscience becomes hardened. Conscience is a nerve. You want to keep it soft and tender before the Lord. But he talks about, in 1 Timothy 4, he talks about, he talks about the false men. He talks about the false teachers whose consciences have been, speared, have been seared. I'll read the text. 1 Timothy 4.1. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, that's us, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. In other words, they cauterize their conscience and they can't feel anything. When the Spirit of God convicts them, they don't feel anymore. They absolutely, that's why they're pathological liars. They just keep sleeping with women. They keep doing this because they don't feel anything. You want to guard your heart. You want to keep a good conscience. And lastly, in 1 Timothy, this is the final word for us. In these unstable, crazy times, what does your family need from you? What does my family need from me? They need us to be men who are following Christ with integrity, confessing our sins as we go along. There's congruency. There's not a difference between our public life and our private life. It goes like this. What that, if you know someone who's got a public arena, the greatest compliment they can be paid by those who love them, he's, he's the same at home as he is in front of the crowds. He's the same guy. There's no double life. There's no public. There's no private. Zacharias was running around with a young masseuse. Young, beautiful, 20-year-old woman. I read an account of a guy. He was at a conference with him. He shows up with this young chick. A masseuse. His wife wasn't there. His daughter wasn't there. No one from his board was there. Here's this young masseuse. And I thought, he has back problems. She wasn't there for his back. And he didn't say a word. Here's a word for you and me. 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Just don't pay attention to the notes in your Bible. Pay attention to yourself. That's what's needed in this day. We're all sinners, but Jesus is a great Savior.
Let's ask him for his help as we close. Father, help us to become like Daniel. Help us to become God-fearing men. Help us to watch over our hearts, for from it flows the wellsprings of life. I, I would pray for each man here that if there is a sin that we have glossed over, that we have rationalized, that we have set aside, that we have ignored, and you continue to speak to us, I pray that we would listen. I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict. I pray if there's a man here that he would not be able to sleep tonight. I pray that he can't sleep tomorrow night until he deals with it, until he repents, until he comes clean and vomits it up before you and ask for your forgiveness that you promised. We're living in tough times and they're going to get tougher. Help us to fight the good fight. Help us to be a Daniel in our day and in our time and our way. We can't do this without you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.